from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. I'm sitting here now with uh, David Llewellyn, uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. And uh, glad why don't, to be here. Glad to have you here. <laughs> why, why don't we uh, Why don't we jump off by uh, having you explain to our audience what it is you do? Well, I'm a trial lawyer in Atlanta, Georgia, and the majority of my work is now and has been for several years in the area of genital injury litigation, by which I mean cases where uh, men have been damaged uh, by circumcision, uh, babies have been damaged by circumcision, or where uh, men or babies have been circumcised against their or their parents' wishes. And I know that sounds strange, but I've actually had a case where an adult having other genital surgery was assured that he would um, retain his foreskin and did not because of a mistake, apparently on the part of the resident who didn't know how to do the surgery without removing the foreskin. Uh, I, I also do a variety of other cases, but I do these cases all across the country. I would be happy to do a case involving a uh, the mutilation of a female, too, which does occur upon occasion, either through malpractice or intent. And uh, how is it that you came to practice this kind of very special <laughs> brand of law? A good question. I, uh, I'm intact myself. I was born in 1950, and I was a premature infant, and uh, they refused to circumcise me. So I grew up knowing the difference. When we had children, we read uh, Edward Wallerstein's book uh, on circumcision and determined that circumcision was a bad thing and we would not do it to our sons. I have two adult sons. And uh, uh, I started doing some parental education. I needed some information uh, to pass out and I had read about the International Symposium on Circumcision in Marilyn Milos and NOSERC and I called Marilyn, whom I did not know. I got some information from her and had a long discussion with her. Eventually she got me involved in a case in Birmingham, Ala I'm sorry, Montgomery, Alabama uh, that she was going to appear as an expert witness in where a child had been circumcised against his parents' instructions. And uh, we, uh, that, we got a verdict, which at that time was a record $65,000 for that child, uh, just for the loss of the foreskin. And I don't mean to minimize that, but that's what it, that's what it was, and that was, I think, how it was just considered. Uh, so that sort of, you know, success uh, puts you on the road to other cases, and other cases came in another one, and... Montgomery and one up in New York, and then it sort of snowballed to the point where I uh, probably do more general injury cases than anybody else uh, in this country or frankly any place else. At the moment, the law in every state is that parents, one parent, can consent to the circumcision of an infant. Uh, I do believe that legally that that is an incorrect proposition, that a parent can consent only to medically necessary procedures. And even the, with the exception of perhaps one or two people around the world I can think of, I don't think anyone would argue that circumcision is medically necessary. There are those who, of course, believe that it is medically beneficial or at least beneficial uh, in the long run. Uh, but I don't think there's anyone, I can think perhaps of one person who has called for mandatory circumcision worldwide, and that would be Brian Morris in Australia, but otherwise I can't think of anyone who has 
who has made yeah. that claim. That's a really fringe position, even in the medical community. I would agree, even among pro-circumcision activists, and, and there is a small group that I would identify as being such. They might not agree, but that's how I would view them, as my opinion. Uh, I would say that is an outlying position, and w would be one that would be very hard to justify on a public health basis and, and, and an individual rights basis, and I think probably could never be adopted here in the United States, not with the present law that we have. It's more problematic to argue that parents can't consent at all. I think legally that is the correct position. I think that no parent can consent to uh, its proxy consent. Children, in the view of modern law and certainly the law of this country, are not just objects that the parents can do whatever they want with. The parents have responsibilities to them, and they have a responsibility only to consent to medically required treatment. Uh, it, it seems to me, at least when there's a permanent body modification. Is there a statute of limitations on circumcision as injury? Well, yes. Uh, it depends upon the state. We have 50 states, and all of them have different statutes of limitations for different things. Uh, some of them have specific statutes of limitations for medical cases, even for infants. A lot of states allow someone who has become an adult to bring an action that's not been brought on his behalf uh, before that time for a certain period of years after he's become of age, he or she. Um, but there are states that, that limit even children's rights and where the parents have to bring uh, the, the cause of action within the same period of time as, as they would for themselves. So that varies from state to state and that's a constant challenge to keep up with it. I generally tell folks who call me that I will give them a general idea but since I'm not a lawyer in that state and can't practice law in that state without being admitted for a particular case, they'll have to talk to a lawyer in their state about the specific statute of limitations. Now, is it legal for non-medical professionals to perform circumcisions? At present, the answer is probably yes. <laughs> if you're talking about the criminal law, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think that the present controversy arising out of the effort in San Francisco to outlaw circumcision has raised some interesting issues. I know of no law that says it is all right for a non-medical professional to cut the flesh of any child. But by the, the law follows society in general. The law rarely leads society. The only time I can think of in my lifetime where the law has actually led society is in the area of sex and race discrimination with the Civil Rights Acts from the 1960s. That did lead society. But even that didn't occur until a substantial section of society agreed that the society needed to go there. Uh, at the moment, I would say that in all 50 states, a doctor can perform a circumcision. A religious functionary such as a moil, a Jewish moil, or mohel, depending upon your pronunciation, can legally perform a circumcision. Now, can a parent legally perform a circumcision, even if done in a sterile manner? The answer is probably not, but certainly the parent could make that argument. There have been several cases recently where parents um, attempted to perform circumcisions on their children and have been punished criminally. I don't know that they have raised in those cases uh, the similarity between what they do and what is done religiously in Judaism or Islam. I think the difference in those cases, though, is that there was no sterile technique used. 
Uh, one of them, I think, involved use of, they were certainly not s standard instruments and this sort of thing. The interesting question would be if a parent wished to circumcise their infant uh, for, the, for whatever reason and use the same techniques that are commonly used by doctors or more lame, would that be permitted? And I really don't have the answer to that. I think that I don't do criminal law. I think it would be defensible to defend that simply because it's allowed to others. I think most judges and prosecutors, however, would, would view that uh, as being wrong and that it would be criminal to do that, which then, of course, creates an anomaly in the law that you're making an exception and saying, well, you don't have to be a doctor. You can do it religiously. There are no standards for training, but we won't let parents do it. So I think it's a, a gray area that really has never been addressed because the problem until very recently has just never presented itself. Because of the work I do, I know a number, number of uh, Mo'olim. Uh, the ones who have appeared as expert witnesses for me uh, are trained medical doctors, use sterile technique, and do it with the exception of the religious portion the same way as they would do it in a hospital setting. In fact, a lot of them do them in hospital settings. Of, and, and I think probably mo most of them do them for uh, um, so-called medical reasons too. So if a Gentile parent wants a child circumcised, they'll do it in a hospital. Or if an adult wants to be circumcised, some of them will do, do it for adults too. Uh, one I'm thinking of is a urologist. And of course, as a urologist, has done it for, for uh, uh, all sorts of different people, not just religiously. Um, uh, and another is an obstetrician. Uh, I expect that he probably does them both in the hospital as well as for uh, at home on the eighth day. But it is an extraordinary situation. I have had two cases involving Moylame in which uh, one was clearly not a doctor and the other clearly was not a doctor. Both of them were non-doctors. In the second case, an extraordinarily tragic case, and it, it, it was a case that resulted in a judgment against Mogan Circumcision Instruments for some $10.7 million uh, in New York. Uh, once again, in the, funny enough, in the Eastern District of New York. And in that case, the uh, Moyle or Mohel had been uh, trained by another Moyle uh, who was also not a physician, I believe that's correct, in Florida. I have a suit pending against the trainer at the moment. Uh, had done a, a number of, of procedures but I would contend not nearly enough. Uh, and uh, used a Mogan clamp and ended up severing the entire glans penis of a child, which luckily was uh, noticed by another physician who was at the breast, and uh, reattachment was attempted, uh, not particularly successfully, regret regrettably. But yes, I think training of Mohels and Moyles uh, is an, an, an issue that uh, really hasn't been addressed by the law, except perhaps in these cases that I brought where I've contended against the Moyle in this case that he was not well trained, he settled with us. I think I'm on my sixth case involving a, a, a full or partial glandular ablation with the Mogan gland. Which brings me to this um, very important point that, um, you know, the medical community seems to minimize when talking about the risks and complications of circumcision. They tend to minimize them. I don't want to get into the numbers because that's a whole other subject. It's very difficult to know exactly. It depends largely on how you define a complication. But what I want to, what I would like you to share with our audience is you're seeing 
you're seeing all of the complications. You're seeing a lot of these issues. Correct. And I want to know, do you think that this is even medically responsible? Well, I, I think it's really irresponsible of the doctors not to face up to how many botched circumcisions there are. If you talk to any labor and delivery nurse, they will tell you there are lots of them. If you talk to any honest pediatric urologist, he is going to tell you there are lots of them. I had an interesting experience some years ago. One of the more common problems is either taking off too much shafts, taking off all the shaft skin on top or the bottom, or taking off too much shaft skin and leaving too much inner foreskin lining. And it's hard verbally to explain how this can happen, but the, the one problem is the foreskin is not skin. It has skin on it, but it is a five-layered structure, which includes a muscle layer called the dartos fascia or dartos muscle that starts behind the scrotum, surrounds the scrotum, and runs straight down the shaft of the penis all the way to the end of the foreskin. And then the foreskin has underneath, on top of that, it has skin, which is epidermis and dermis, and underneath it has a supporting layer called lamina propria, and then inner mucosa. And this is flexible. And whether or not the dartos fascia is tightly bound to the underlying what's called Buck's fascia or not makes a lot of difference in the end result of the circumcision. And I think a lot of physicians don't understand the penal skin system. In fact, I feel quite confident that they don't, that they don't understand that they need to push back on the, where the skin joins the scrotal skin so that they make sure they're spread out, that they've got to be very careful how much they take or don't take. So shaft stripping is real common. I think if you ask any pediatric urologist, uh, they will tell you that they see on, a, on, on at least a weekly basis, if not more often, some damage beyond the damage of circumcision itself. Whether it's injury to the glands penis, whether it's shaft stripping, whatever it is, they see it. Um, the, David Gibbons, who's the director of pediatric urology at Georgetown University Medical Center, uh, has a couple of times, he, he published a letter in, uh, I think it was one of the urological journals and then in, in an online comment to a, a, um, uh, a popular magazine related how many he has seen. And he is certainly seeing one a week, if not two a week. And I think that's pretty typical. And if you multiply that, I don't know how many pediatric urologists there are. There used to be few. There are more now. There may be 300 in the United States. And if you figure two per week times um, 50 weeks or 52 weeks, 100 a year times 300, and what is that, 30,000 injured boys a year. And all of these are hidden because the genitals are hidden. Um, I want to transition into a discussion of some of the basic legal issues surrounding this practice. And one of the um, arguments that's often made uh, by intactivists is that um, ever since um, female genital cutting was outlawed in this country, and there's federal laws against it on the books now, we are in a situation of gender inequality, that, um, that sure. boys do not enjoy equal protection from genital cutting under the law. Can you address that, and does that argument have any merit in your, in your view? Well, Equal protection analysis is one of the more difficult areas of constitutional law. First of all, the federal statute is a criminal statute 
and I believe only applies where federal criminal law applies. The high seas, uh, federal reservations, federal, perhaps federal hospitals uh, on federal land. So that it really doesn't, it doesn't outlaw what happens within the boundaries of a state that's not affected by federal criminal law. In other words, it may affect what happens in the Chattahoochee Natural For uh, National Forest, uh, in, in other national forests, on military reservations, say Fort Stewart here in, in this state, uh, and, and uh, well, there's several forts that we have here in this state. But I, I don't believe, and I'm not, because I don't practice criminal law, I don't want to be definitive about this, but I don't believe that that statute actually covers what happens in hospitals in the various states. That's covered by, by state criminal law. And it's one of the anomalies of our system, okay, that, that the states have different laws, and there are 50 of states with all sorts of different laws. Do we have an equal protection problem? Well, no one's, I have not researched the issue, and I'm always careful about offering legal opinions until I have. I think most judges are. That's why candidates and states that elect judges don't want to comment, because they haven't listened to all the arguments, and they haven't looked at all the law, and these things are very, very specific. Does it seem to me that it is unfair to outlaw all genital cutting of females, even the cutting which is the anatomical equivalent of male circumcision, which would be removal of the hood or clitoral prepuce, the clitoral foreskin. That is prohibited, at least federally. Is it anomalous to say, well, we will outlaw it for girls when it is no worse and arguably is less, less invasive than the circumcision of a boy? I would say, yes, it's wrong. Now, whether or not anyone can challenge that under any particular circumstances is another question. And it is quite possible that the only one who would be able to challenge it is somebody who's being prosecuted under the law federally and would argue, well, this is an unequal situation. It's not quite as simple as saying, well, it violates the Constitution to do this. That analysis is, is unfortunately simplistic. It sounds right. But I'm not sure who is in a position to challenge the statute, and, and I'm not sure that you can argue, well, you can't positively create a right. In other words, I don't believe a court's ever going to say, well, we've outlawed it for girls, so therefore it's outlawed for boys. It really doesn't work that way. It's more like you would be able to strike down the statute as being unequal. People have varying degrees of knowledge of what happened this summer. This was a sure. big summer for this issue. Right. And I was wondering if you could do, if we could start by, if you could give us a rundown of the sort of timeline of events that happened, and then we can get into some of the analysis. Well, I'm not, I have not been involved in any of those efforts, so this is sort of what you would call rank hearsay. But as I understand it, <laughs> that for some years there has been an, an effort by at least one individual to pass what is known as the MGM bill, that's the Male Genital Mutilation Bill, which essentially mirrors the federal statute against female genital cutting. And that effort was, uh, has, there have been several means by which that effort has been put forth. One is to convince legislators to introduce it within various legislatures. In Massachusetts, a year or so ago, that Massachusetts 
has a process whereby a citizen can propose to his legislator and get his legislator to quote unquote sponsor a bill within the legislature. And uh, a gentleman uh, managed to get a state legislator to put this, they may even be mandatory, but get a state legislature, legislator to propose this bill in the Massachusetts legislature, it did not make it out of committee. And as I recall, it was somewhat derisively treated in committee. Uh, then someone else took this same wording, someone else not directly connected with uh, a particular organization, decided after having attended uh, a conference on circumcision that was held last summer in Berkeley, California, that, the, that he would, under California's law, which allows individuals to propose ordinances in cities, or that's in San Francisco. And then there is also a, as I think most people know, a, a procedure in California whereby you can have a statewide proposition that becomes the law. You have to get so many signatures. So this uh, Lloyd Schofield, who's the individual, went and decided that, that circumcision was wrong, and he solicited signatures throughout the city of San Francisco, he and a group of others. Uh, interestingly, uh, a number of them were Jewish, I believe. At any rate, they solicited enough signatures to get this on the ballot. Apparently not realizing that California law had been changed uh, and there was arguably a statute that prohibited localities from interfering with the practice of medicine at all. And when there were enough signatures to get this on the ballot and this became known, a number of groups sued uh, and I can't remember, I don't want to misuse the names of those groups, but some were religious groups and some were not, and they sued anyway to, for an injunction, and the judge granted it um, using somewhat broad language, but the essence of the, uh, of the injunction was that state law says the, the local communities can't regulate the practice of medicine, circumcision is the practice of medicine, therefore, on this basis alone, I'll issue the injunction, plus if I didn't issue the injunction, if I just limit it to doctors, then it becomes religiously discriminatory since those are the only people who are doing it and therefore it would violate the First Amendment. Lately I've been hearing a lot of people suggest that any attempt to pass a law against circumcision would be uh, a violation either of the First Amendment or of the Establishment Clause. So I was wondering if you could address uh, those legal issues and what your opinion of that view is. As I said earlier, the law follows society. And the law in regard to constitutional interpretation is very much what the courts say that it is. But generally, the Supreme Court has held that belief is protected. And you cannot regulate belief but you can regulate behavior. There was a case of Prince versus Massachusetts, which made this pretty plain. As I recall, that's the case that says parents are willing to be, uh, are, are able to make martyrs of themselves, but should not be able to make martyrs of their children. It had to do with refusal of blood transfusions, as I recall. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in receiving blood transfusions, and the question was, could a parent deny that to the child, as, as I recall in that case. Um, whatever the facts of that case, that is the general feeling of the court. So in my opinion, 
a statute that outlawed all non-medically necessary circumcision of infant males or males under the age of 18, except for medical reasons, all, all such, would not be unconstitutional. Such a law could be passed, and under what I understand the prior precedence of the Supreme Court to be, would be entirely legal and constitutional because it would treat all of them the same. And the fact that certain religions require or encourage circumcision would not be an impediment to the passing of that law because circumcision is the changing of the natural body. Having said that, I think it is unlikely, one, that any legislature is going to pass that within the foreseeable future. And two, it is certainly not impossible that a religious exception would be made if such a statute passed. Uh, in other words, the Supreme Court would hold that it was uh, unconstitutional because this was such a basic issue in certain religions, Judaism in particular. I don't think the court's ever quite been presented with an issue that would be quite so inflammatory. And I say that because of the of the long history involving Jews and Christians in the Western world, the sanction that Scripture, uh, at least in the Old Testament, gives to circumcision is a little bit different than a view that is held by far fewer folks and that is of relatively recent origin. Now, I, can't, I can only speculate what a court would do, I can't say, but I do think that to blanket say that the First Amendment prohibits any legislature from prohibiting circumcision of minors for non-medical reasons, I don't think you can make that statement. I don't, I don't believe that is true under the present interpretation of the law. Now, what a court would do with that in the end, I don't think anyone can predict. It would certainly be uh, an interesting case. And I can't really say in, in the end what would happen. But I think I can say that you cannot make the blanket statement, as was made by a number of folks in California uh, recently, that the First Amendment prohibits the passage of such a law. At any rate, the, the, the judge issued the injunction. And uh, to date, it's not been appealed. And I, I really don't know enough to know whether the time for appeal has passed. But this brought a lot of attention worldwide. As a person who's opposed to routine infant circumcision, what is your assessment of the strategic wisdom of what people did in San Francisco this summer? Well, there are differing opinions about that. Um, the effort itself uh, has been useful in the sense that it has raised people's awareness. It was certainly well-intentioned. From what I know of the people who were directly involved in that effort, it certainly was not meant to attack Judaism or any particular religion. Uh, I know some of the people who were involved who are Jewish. Uh, they just believe circumcision, whether it's religious or non-religious, Circumcision of infants, of non-consenting infants, is wrong. I really don't know of anyone who opposes an adult being circumcised if they wish. There may be people out there who 
feel that shouldn't happen, but I don't know of anybody who thinks that ought to be prohibited. But there are those uh, within Judaism as well as without who feel that regardless of religion, parents ought not to be able to consent to the to the circumcision of a minor because after all we don't know what religion the minor will have and it is a permanent body modification. Now there are others of course who feel that that is so central to Judaism and Islam and perhaps other religions that it ought to be permitted and this is the argument. Was this strategically wise? Gee, I'll leave that to others to decide. Um, it, it certainly has aroused a lot of passions uh, and uh, Perhaps it was not the wisest thing to do, but I think it was well-intentioned. I think it's unfortunate that those who viewed it as a threat viewed it as opposition to their religion in general, which I certainly don't think it is. I know most of the folks who are, there, there is no central command of this very loose movement, as you know. Uh, uh, of those of us who think that that circumcision is unwise. I got involved in this because I thought that the doctors were continuing to essentially pervert medicine. They were making arguments that were bad uh, from a medical standpoint. They were ignoring the harm. And in fairness to them, when I first got involved, the papers who showed the real harm, I mean, the harm should be intuitive to folks, Certainly, uh, the Rambam, Moses Maimonides, understood that there was harm, and I think generally it was accepted up until about 1960-65 that circumcision lessened you in some sense uh, sexually, and that that was a good thing. It wasn't until the sexual revolution happened that suddenly, oh no, it doesn't cause any difference at all, which in, intuitively is, 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 is incorrect. I mean, you, you cannot cut normal functional tissue off the body without making some change to it. But my involvement really came about because I thought the doctors weren't being honest about it. I still think many doctors are not being honest about it. You know, we have a situation where, where the PEPFAR, the President's Program for AIDS Relief in Africa, is encouraging the circumcision now of infants all over Africa. Okay, without any discussion whatsoever. I have seen no discussion coming out of Africa whatsoever about the function of the foreskin, its protective purposes and its sexual purposes. Instead, we're getting astounding studies, one that came out the other day that said essentially 100% of the adult men who've been circumcised in Africa are satisfied with it and most of them love it. Maybe that's what that study showed but I find that to be an astounding proposition, just giving the number of men who've complained to me that they don't like being circumcised. I, I liken it to an election in Iran, <laughs> where you have 99% of the people voted for the person in power, for the incumbent. Well, it would be astounding to think that 100% that of any group about any surgery were happy with it. Um, Ron Goldman, who runs the Circumcision Resource Center in, in Boston. I don't know if you know Ron, but he is Jewish, and he has taken, he, he has said numerous times, before we discuss circumcision, everybody needs to declare their status. Are they, are they not circumcised? Have they ever circumcised somebody, and why? Because it clears the air. That's why I don't mind saying I'm intact anymore. I'm 60 years old, I'm too old to worry about whether people know I'm intact or not. But I think it's fair that people know that, because then they can say, well, your status colors your opinion, and does it? Probably. 
I think I think to clear the air, yes, I think that's undoubtedly so. At the same time, if you could show me and convince me that circumcision really were worth the candle, really did something that was worthwhile and, and, that, the, and that there was overwhelming evidence that it did something good to a person whereby they would not acquire a disease that could be acquired just by being in a room with somebody, because that's what we vaccinate against. We vaccinate against diseases that can be gotten by mere touching, by a sneeze, by something like that that's easily communicable, rather than by theoretically reducing an incidence, a disease that I can get by having sex with a, you know, voluntarily with an infected person, then you might convince me that circumcision is something that ought to continue, but I haven't seen that evidence yet. But I do think bias does affect studies and does affect the argument. It's almost impossible not to, we're human beings. But we all ought to be able to sit back and say, yes, we do have our biases, can we look at this dispassionately, rather than being so passionate about it. David Llewellyn, thank you so much for joining us. I really oh, appreciate it. And thank I, you. I look forward to uh, having you at the screening tonight. Well, I look forward to seeing it again. It's a wonderful film. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 